Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And first of all today, I'd like to give a shout-out to fellow saloner Jack Lukeman. Jack, uh, I'm really sorry that my wife and I weren't able to take you up on your offer of a free pass to one of your performances at the San Diego Fringe Festival. As much as I hate to admit it, uh, we're just getting too old to (laughs) want to go out at night anymore. And to tell the truth, that sounds really strange coming out of my mouth because, well, it was just a few years ago that I thought that I'd be able to party until I dropped. Times uh, sure change as these bodies of ours enter old age. Of course, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case for the Rolling Stones, does it? (laughs) Anyway, Jack, uh, that was quite nice of you to invite us, and I'm sorry to have missed you. Also, uh, I have an announcement that fellow saloner and psychedelic researcher Alicia Danforth asked me to read for you. And I quote, We have had 200 screening inquiries, but the majority of them have been from out of the L.A. area. We think it's great that there's a nationwide and international interest in this research, but we need referrals for locals. We want to reach out to friends, families, and allies who know autistic adults with social anxiety who might want to screen for enrollment. And here's the current status of our research. We have treated eight participants and enrolled nine, which means we still need to find three more participants. No serious adverse events have been reported. And it is a social anxiety study, not an autism study. We are working with autistic adults because they are more prone to social anxiety and conventional treatments have not been shown to be very effective for them. Here is the text of the IRB-approved recruitment ad. Do you have social anxiety or social phobia? We are seeking men and women on the autism spectrum with social anxiety who are at least 21 years old. You must be in good physical health with blood pressure that is normal. We are conducting a research study of an experimental drug used in combination with therapy. The study takes place in the Los Angeles area and requires about 15 visits to the study location over several months. For more information, please call 310-222-1664. And I'll post this notice in today's program notes, which as you know you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. Now, uh, here's a spoiler alert of sorts for our fellow saloners who, like me, dislike the little clicking sound in some of the Terrence McKenna recordings. Well, I'm sorry to report that such is the case again today. Now, it isn't as bad as a few months ago, but I still thought that it might be interesting to add this series of workshop talks to our collection, since, uh, well, as far as I know, it hasn't been widely passed around before. So uh, what you and I are going to listen to in just a moment is the first workshop that Terrence gave in 1996, just after he returned from that year's Entheobotany Conference in Palenque, Mexico. Now, I wasn't there that year, but my wife was, as were several of my good friends. And uh, from what I understand, uh, well, how can I say it? Let's just say that a good time was had by all. But you have probably already heard enough of my stories about the Planque conferences. Uh, however, in just a moment, you're going to get a good idea of how difficult it was to recover from those amazing times. 
Right now I'm going to play the beginning part of this tape just as it came to me. And as you listen to the very first words Terrence speaks in this workshop, try and uh, picture yourself as sitting in that room and hearing him speak for the very first time that you've ever heard him. You know, pretend that you've never heard this uh, somewhat unusual voice and that you were a little apprehensive and not quite sure what to expect from this uh, very publicly psychedelic person. And as you listen just now uh, to how he begins, try and think about uh, your initial reaction and how you would have uh, thought about him at the very beginning of this workshop. Hmm. I guess you've had your introduction to Asselin. You know that the baths are open 24 hours a day. Uh, the baths are very colorful. I was there today and... Uh, Someone sat down next to me, and I noticed that they looked like a uh, middle Picasso. They had one eye this way and one eye this way, and their nose over here. And uh, and it, it, it was like a Fellini movie crossed with Disney. It, there were these very large-breasted women cavorting in the pool in the sunshine, and then they were like, chipmunks and uh, geese and donkeys and uh, and so I realized that the recent two weeks I spent in Mexico were really sticking with me and uh, <laughs> <coughs> had to retire to my room and think it over uh, where was I what was I saying oh yeah that it's much better if it's driven by the agenda of the people here I will go through my various routines, but you should feel free to deflect me. Uh, this evening we're not going to try to do a whole lot because a lot of people have driven either from LA or the Bay Area and fairly burnt out. Um, as far as what's new or what's on my mind that I find interesting, uh, Right before I left for Mexico, I noticed that uh, they made um, 900 atoms of antimatter in a device at CERN in Switzerland. Not antiparticles, but anti-helium, actual anti-molecules of antimatter. Uh, this could be trivial, it could be an experimental effect in the laboratory, or it could fling humanity to the stars within decades. It's hard to tell. When you bring antimatter into contact with matter, you get a 100% conversion of energy. This is better than atomic energy. This is how you would do it if you were going to move through the Newtonian universe and overwhelm uh, the vast distances that separate us from the stars. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in is uh, the accelerating development of understanding about nature that's happening across all kinds of interfaces and very quickly uh, fields that are very divergent and unconnected to each other are all reaching toward their own holy grail whether we're talking about you know the antimatter people, uh, there was also that little bit of information that the Hubble Space Telescope they pointed it at one tiny part of the sky for 
10 successive nights. It was called Director, Project Director's Observational Privilege to use 10% of the observation time on his own personal projects. So he chose to observe this very small portion of the universe in extreme detail. And the conclusion is that there are not 10 billion galaxies, there are 50 billion galaxies. You know, from one 10-day observation, the size of the universe has just expanded by five times. Uh, this kind of thing is very bizarre because these are, you know, kind of revolutions that used to take centuries to assimilate, just keep following each other, one after another after another. Uh, this thing I mentioned about computing with DNA, some of you may have been following this. There is a way to harness DNA so that it can perform the Boolean functions, the same functions computers perform. In a glass this size of DNA, you have more computational power than all the hardwired machinery in North America right now. The order of computational speed and compression is not one order of magnitude, but five orders of magnitude. It's like impossible to imagine uh, the kind of software that that kind of hardware can run. One of the things that we'll talk about, because this is, after all, the briefing for a descent into novelty, is uh, my own mathematical model of time and, uh, and the predictions it makes about the next few months and the basis of it. Some of you have heard this lecture over and over and over again. As far as what's new, what's new is uh, among many other peculiar things that happened in Mexico. Uh, I, before I went to Mexico, I had been getting email from a person in England, a mathematician named Matthew Watkins. And he allowed us how he would be at Palenque when I was there, not part of this group, but just passing through, sort of, which is a little peculiar on the face of it, since <laughs> Palenque is nowhere on the road to nothing. <clears throat> and so in the course of these two weeks that I was in Mexico, we had four meetings beside the swimming pool. And um, I will spare you the gory details, but uh, um, among mathematicians there is the tradition of what is called the objection. Uh, when René Thom brought forth catastrophe theory, <clears throat> there was a Belgian mathematician who lodged an objection which has stood to this day, and you sort of have to sort all this out. Anyway, uh, as the time wave has grown, one of my wishes for it has been uh, critique. It's now 25 years old, and nobody has ever done anything about it except allow us how it was astonishing and I was a genius. Well, now comes Watkins with a different uh, opinion, uh, with, in fact, the Watkins objection 
which holds that uh, this is uh, flimsy at best, delusional at worst. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we went over it from a number of angles. And uh, I found him most interesting, uh, not entirely comprehensible to me, because we speak fairly different languages, he being a formal mathematician and an algebraist, and me being uh, a drug-crazed messianic visionary. <laughs> but uh, over the next little while at the website, uh, we will conduct an email discussion with input from Peter Meyer and Peter Broadwell, who were the primary programmers of the original thing, and Klaus Schraff at Tübingen in Germany, who duplicated the algorithm, and Ralph Abraham. And uh, now we are fully engaged. I'm alarmed. Watkins sense blood. The whole thing is uh, much more interesting uh, than it was before. And coming as it does on the brink of this plunge into novelty, uh, I was led at one point to contemplate the possibility that the plunge into novelty would wipe out the theory that predicted the plunge into novelty in the first place. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> life is much more interesting uh, than it was before. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, well, one of the things that I'm keen to discuss with you uh, is... Uh, thinking about um, language structures and culture and ideas as um, using a, a model based on computer organization. Talking, and I'll get more into this tomorrow, but talking about how the realization that I think is coming to a lot of people in a hurry is that large portions of reality, if not all of reality, is code, is code of some sort. That the primary reality is language, mathematical languages, spoken languages, that syntax is the, is the only level you can reach without some set of philosophical presuppositions. And the interesting thing about that, to be explored in more detail, is that if, if reality is code, then it can be hacked in some way that we had not suspected before. Uh, a way of thinking of this is like uh, science by exteriorizing the world and taking it very seriously as an ontos of its own, Magic, on the other hand, is when you strip away the, the folkloric presuppositions, is basically a theory of ontology that says the world is made of linguistic intent. You know, it is held together by the power of projective will and linguistic structures are primary. Science is a victimizing uh, position in a sense, because it makes man, uh, it, it, it accepts in its own weird way 
the notion of man's fall. It marginalizes man to uh, an accidental process, a peripheral process, an ancillary, coincidental, uh, chancy thing. Magic takes an entirely different position. Basically, the idea is that existence is unfinished, that nature provides a platform from which magical humanity can uh, build forward. It's a co-partnership deal. It's not a, it's not a, a wrathful god and a pathetic humanity. This is the position of Renaissance magic, basically. Marcello Ficino and Pico de Mirandolo and uh, that crowd, Bruno, D. D. <clears throat> yes, maybe because... So we're separate from nature? Well, not exactly separate, but we inherit it. Actually, what we are is we're the concrescence of nature. You know, it's very hard for us when looking at something like alchemy to realize that it was not only a process in the lives of individual people related to their concepts of uh, material transformation or psychic transformation, but it was actually the psychology of an age. That's what alchemy was. And in a, in, we say, well, alchemy failed because it never turned lead to gold. But in a sense, the Italian Renaissance is the medieval lead turned to the secular gold of reform and rebirth. I've been thinking about all this lately because one of the things that was happening for me in Mexico was a horrific <clears throat> series of headaches. And I, uh, they keep me up in the darkest part of the night. Uh, and the, it made me think, do you know Albert Durer's drawing of melancholia, which shows uh, a very opulent female angel in robes with money bags on her belt and strewn about her are navigational instruments, compasses, measuring devices. Uh, there's a ladder behind her, a, a rainbow in the background, a strange polygon in the foreground, a weeping cherub, and her face is blackened and she holds her face like this. She is Saturnine Melancholy. Saturnine melancholy is a place in Renaissance psychology related to um, understanding the functioning of complex technical devices, uh, vision, and prophecy. And uh, this, this figure of this black-faced female angel locked in musico-mathematical Pythagorean contemplation and migranous headache uh, came to me in these, in these uh, I call the migraines actually reverse psychedelic experiences. 
You know, they're like the anti-psychedelic experience. Uh, and uh, and I, I saw then that this night humor, this style of melancholia, is uh, inimical to the to the psychedelic enterprise, and that uh, in a sense the the uh, how shall I put it naive optimism or depthless um, cheerfulness of the new age formulation of the visionary quest doesn't really come to terms with this Gethsemane aspect of it, that knowledge is hard won, and uh, it's hard won in the, uh, in the individual's struggle for self-knowledge, and it's hard won in uh, the societal struggle to, for, to come to terms with itself, to discipline itself, to instil, instill values in itself. What is Gethsemane? The place where Christ meditated the night before he gave himself up to the Roman soldiery. So it's a metaphor for, uh, it's called the agony in the garden. And it's, uh, you can still go there. It's, I've been there. Lots of olive trees in the garden of Gethsemane. I've gotten loaded there. Gethsemane. Are we all agreed on this? Those of us who've heard it before? I'm not mangling anything. Good. Gethsemane. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, this moment we're passing through is very interesting. Uh, and by this moment, I actually mean between here and the end of the month. I mean February 1996. There, this is a period of enormous resistance to the future compared to all that is to come. It's the highest speed bump we have to surmount between here and uh, my own peculiarly uh, local form of the millennium, which is basically sometime in late 2012. Well, <clears throat> first of all, it's the dead of winter. It's not resistance. I should explain. My notion is that um, the, uni the world as we experience it is a struggle between two different kinds of forces. On the one side, habit rather than resistance or all these uh, habit. And what is habit? It's what has come before. It's repetitious. It's uh, predictable, it's entropic, it's recursive, it's iterative. And the other thing is novelty. And novelty is complexity, symmetry breaks, the improbable, the unusual, the unexpected, the unstable, um, the unusual. And so, you see, there is this ebb and flow, this tension between these two things in every moment, 
in in the last five minutes, in the last five millennia, in the last five billion years. There has been a struggle between these two forces and they can be mathematically portrayed uh, just like the rise and fall of temperature or the rise and fall of a stock or or any other numerical quantity. They can theoretically be portrayed in this way. Well, then where we are now, if we think of habit as a rising of this imaginary Cartesian graph and habit as a falling toward novelty, deeper into novelty, we say, a plunge into novelty, uh, then where we are now is creeping along the highest edge of a plateau of habit, recidivism, constipation, uh, conservatism, habitual thinking, so forth and so on, inevitably approaching a dramatic collapse in that style of behavior uh, <coughs> caused by many different vectors coming together, climate, economy, politics, invention, technology, hormones, moon phases, ocean tides, cometary impacts, the spinning of the planet around the sun, so forth and so on. Uh, Time, as experienced, is very complex and rich and fractal and filled with anticipation and um, whatever the opposite of anticipation is, reconsideration, memory, regret, satisfaction. Uh, but the time that you get out of science is completely emotionless. It's, it's like a skeletal map of time. It's featureless. Uh, measurements are carried out without concern for where in the universal matrix uh, they are made. So there's a schism between the scientific model of time and time as experienced. Yeah. Well, I would partially agree with you and, and suggest that, yes, it, history is a series of forward movements and backward lurches, but over long periods of time, there is actually visible advance. In t if we carefully enough define advance, I mean, it's not advance into cheerfulness or advance into... Uh, universal progress and so forth and so on. But there is some kind of advance. History is, on one level, you know, in, like in 1984, uh, I can't remember, the interrogator's name says to Winston Smith, he says, if you want, what's his name? O'Brien says to Smith, if you want an image of human history, think of a boot kicking a human face forever. Well, that's, that, that is that static image of history. I, I'm not that pessimistic. If you pull back to a scale of 25,000 years, history is an enormously creative rush out of the darkness toward the light. Uh, the fact that, you know, so much blood and gore is spilled along the way is pause for thought. But if what is being birthed is novelty, 
then uh, we seem to have hit the main vein of novelty. Uh, you know, there was animal life for a very long time on this planet, and there was human intelligence for a very long time. I mean, people physically like you and I have been in existence for at least 150,000 years. That's you know, uh, many, many times the duration of history. Those people had humor, drama, innuendo, rumor, gossip, hope, fear, loathing, so forth and so on. What they didn't have was technological expressions of their manas. They didn't download their minds into matter the way we do and have been doing for quite a while. And that's changed things and to my mind it it i guess i'm operating on the a priori assumption that novelty is to be cherished because i observe that nature cherishes novelty you know whenever you create a homogenate whether chemical social religious gaseous, whatever, it devolves into a hetero, into some kind of aggregate of mixed types. Purity dissolves into complexity. The simple becomes the compound in all processes, in all times and places. So, uh, you said, isn't it always thus? And it is. But it hasn't always been described this way, especially in the West. I think pr probably this line comes closest in terms of a tradition to uh, Taoism. I mean, after all, Taoism is about some all-pervading but invisible something, which is the first thing they tell you about it is it's hard to understand. And yet, somehow, it builds things up and it pulls things down according to its own mysterious inner dynamic. Well, surely what we're talking about here is time, but a different kind of time than the time of science, which doesn't build things up. It may pull things down. You know, there is in science great genuflection to what is called the second law of thermodynamics, which is simply a law which says everything falls to pieces. The, the exception, which is never mentioned, is life itself. And the reason it's never mentioned is because to physicists, life is so uninteresting and peripheral that it can actually just be rounded out. <laughs> you say, well, since only 0.00000% of the universe is alive, let's just pretend none of it's alive. Now what kind of a system do we have? Yes, but notice that um, the life of the average star is about 500 million years. This star that we happen to be in orbit around happens to be an unusually stable star, hence a lifetime of, uh, of maybe four, five, six, seven, eight billion years. But most stars gutter out in a, in a fraction of that time. 
And since very early on in the establishment of this cosmic environment, life has been present. It survives through death, which is an interesting trick. Death is somehow for life this opportunity to throw the dice again and improve the odds in its own favor. It is slowly over hundreds of millions of years, stacked the deck, worked the game in its favor, where there was a toxic planet bathed in hard radiation. It created an atmosphere which softened all of that. And then within that atmosphere, it established niches of temperature and moisture and so forth, and always sustaining itself. And tremendous setbacks. I mean, planet shattering setbacks, asteroid infalls, enormous volcanic eruptions, uh, and who knows what else. And though the clock has been reset many times, never reset to zero. It always picks itself up and proceeds forward in this relentless uh, search to acquire and maintain novelty. And it does it through uh, what is called um, dissipative structure or open system. Or structuralism. Well, structuralism is... is, uh, To some degree. Non-equilibrium thermodynamics is really the study of what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how a system... Remember how most systems run down toward equilibrium. But some systems establish themselves at what is called far from equilibrium. And they maintain themselves there, not for decades, but for millions of years. Biology is such a system. And the way it pulls this trick off is by being what's called an open system or a dissipative structure. What that means is how the trick is done is you are open. And so you bring in highly organized material, uh, food, ideas, money. It depends on what kind of system you are, a corporation, an organism, a university. But in any case, you bring in highly organized material, you extract energy from it, you trap this energy within a membrane of some sort, and you excrete then the lower-grade used-up stuff And by trapping energy within these membranes, you ride far from equilibrium. Sooner or later, you die if you're a biological system. But sometime before you die, if you're a successful biological system, you condense and download your software and pass it on to some other part of the system. Now, this sounds incredibly chancy, And you wouldn't think this would be a strategy for overcoming uh, a fairly hostile and tropic universe. But it turns out it not only works, meaning it not only sustains itself, it actually has enough flexibility and creativity left over to advance, to incrementally advance through the process of morphogenesis. Morphogenesis is the trapping of form in matter. I mean, think about your body, for example. Uh, 
every five years, six years, every molecule in your body is replaced. You are not who you were seven years ago. Maybe the gold in your teeth is the same, but your teeth aren't the same. There is some small percentage of neural tissue which is believed to remain constant through life, but 95% of you is, is being cycled through. So you aren't an object. You're a process of some sort. And uh, you can discover the difference between yourself and an object by considering a chair and what happens when you slice into a chair, not very much. Uh, when you slice into yourself, it creates a crisis because it interrupts metabolism. Metabolism is <clears throat> time trapped in a biological matrix. We are essentially membranes of some sort that have trapped time in some kind of a matrix. And through this, we are undergoing the formality of being alive. This is sort of like a description of what it's like to be alive from inside. Well, uh, so then this raises uh, the issue that brings in the drugs. The drugs, the plants, the substances are uh, metabolized as well, like food. What foods are essentially are idea-neutral drugs on one level. You know, they undergo the formality of keeping you alive. They don't give you a lot of ideas. Of course, if you're a gastronome, perhaps they do. You know, if you, if you have the sensitivity of a Proust, then a good uh, uh, Saturn can send your mind reeling back to the smell of your grandmother's lap. 45 years before, and so forth and so on. But generally speaking, foods stabilize us in this dimension of trap time that is our metabolism, our being alive. What drugs do is um, affect this stability, perturb this stability. And this word perturb is interesting because it's the very word that um, Ilya Prigozhin, the French uh, thermodynamicist, used when he was defining dissipative structures. What Prigozhin showed was that chemical systems, and he wasn't even talking about biology, he was talking about complex physical chemical systems, spontaneously mutate to higher states of order. Well, if you start out from the understanding that th this is basically the uh, ground zero of the physical world and that you have spontaneous mutation to higher states of order, then you see that there is embedded in uh, matter itself this curious appetite for creativity that runs counter to the ordinary wisdom about how everything uh, falls to pieces. And again, life is some kind of strategy for taking this minuscule percentage of creativity and trapping it in loops that loop and iterate and iterate and iterate and build and build 
And through this, after at some extraordinary level of complexity, or like around nine billion neurons, you have what's called an emergent property. And there's nothing mysterious about this. I mean, imagine if you have one atom of water. It does not have the property wet. How could it? It's an atom of water. But now if you have a hundred billion atoms of water, wetness is an emergent property that is only visible when there is an enormous population of water molecules. Similarly, when you have a large enough population of neurons, there is an iridescence that is coaxed out of all that neural machinery that is self-reflection. And it is, uh, you know, that Grateful Dead song, You Are the Eyes of the World? I mean, this is nature looking at itself. When you ask, who am I? The answer is, I am this process. And when you ask, what am I seeing? You're seeing this process. You are retroflexively embedded in a process of becoming. This is why, though he didn't get everything right, Heidegger was on the right track when he said, a human being is not an object or a process, but a window of opportunity into eternity. In other words, beyond process thinking, there is an implicit metaphysic. Uh, this has to do with the cutting edge. And uh, the cutting edge is where it's at, uh, always has been. Uh, it's an extension of ourselves, first the blade and then uh, the word. This is why words are inevitably conceived of as swords, because they divide reality. They make distinction and they uh, give definition. So we're caught up in some kind of um, autocatalytic hypercycle of reflex, reflexivity, and that would be a good way to put it. And the psychedelics, by sort of speeding up and slowing down and disrupting and perturbing this metabolic flow of energy become primary data for understanding uh, how self and world works. And then, of course, far from all of this, far from the, the dark night of the soul and its contemplation of the linguistic cutting edge, is the receptacle of culture that we all move in and down to which we eventually must download our perceptions and make sense of them, make sense of them in a, in a historical context, in a sexual context, in a relational context to the rest of the past and the future. It, the faith here is sort of that you can think your way to at least the illusion of an understanding. Uh, you know, is it, it's in the Arthurian legends or it's in um, Parsifal where Lancelot, or maybe it's not Lancelot, anyway, somebody 
rides a horse across a burning bridge. And I think all logical constructs are these burning bridges. Uh, it need only last long enough for you to get your thundering steed across. Uh, it doesn't have to be for the ages. Uh, because, uh, you know, the beginning of intellectual maturity is to understand that what these models illuminate is greater darkness, inevitably greater darkness. You can make a geometric model out of it and just say, as the sphere of understanding expands, so necessarily the surface area of ignorance grows ever larger. And how could it be otherwise? Uh, only if you live in some tiny universe, the equivalent of a trailer of some sort, could the light of your illumination be expected to shed itself into the far corners of the cosmos? No, it's a discovery of the provisional nature of knowledge. And if you look at the history of philosophy, this is really what has been understood over 2,000 years. Less and less has been understood as the nature of the problem has come into clearer and clearer focus. I mean, it's one thing when you're trying to figure out if the world is made of earth, air, fire, or water. It's quite another if you're trying to answer questions like, what is the nature of the self in the context of language? You know, you take the simple questions early and the more complex questions late, but inevitably you come to the complex questions. And this is where we are. And uh, to me, what all of this, the conclusion, and I'll close for this evening, the conclusion of all of this intellectual circumlocution and so forth, is the importance of the felt experience of the moment that the felt experience of the moment is the only secure datum for reality. And everything else is memory, anticipation, and conjecture. And so, you know, we have developed these very abstract analytical tools like epistemology and so forth and so on in the Western tradition. The only purpose of these things is to lead you back to the felt presence of experience. So in a sense, philosophy and tripping and uh, self-discovery is the journey of a prodigal son. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't complete itself unless you return to where you started from uh, enriched. And the, the place you start from is the felt presence of immediate experience. So we will explore all of this in greater detail. Uh, this was fairly high-flung and humorless uh, this evening, but it doesn't have to be. Um, thank you very much. Get some sleep. The baths are open 24 hours a day. There is in Zoroastrian religion, which is an older religious strata than the Vedic strata, a sacrament called Haoma. And Haoma, which 
you can tell that the word is related to the Vedic concept soma, but haoma is unambiguously pagaman harmala. And uh, uh, was apparently the basis of some kind of psychedelic sacrament on its own. Uh, pagaman harmala contains a lot of harmaline, very little harmine. It also, strangely enough, and this is new data uh, to everybody, 30% of the alkaloid content of pagaman harmala is vasocene, about which virtually nothing is known other than melting point and activity in dogs. Uh, Sasha Shulgin, in this Mexican meeting I just came from, lectured on, uh, on the alkaloid content of pagaman harmala. So vasocene is in there. We really should regard pagaman harmala as a fairly mysterious and untested compound. Uh, if you're interested in all of this, Jonathan Ott wrote a book called Ayahuasca Analogues. Uh, it's apparently available here at the bookstore. It's a small, thin book. It details his personal self-experimentation with various MAO inhibitors and sources <clears throat> of DMT. This is all new stuff. It's amazing that, you know, we've talked about Pagaman Harmala for 25 years. He did a GCMS on it. Out pops vasocene, 30% of the alkaline compound a content. He's wondering if uh, anybody's ever noticed it. And then, you know, you go back to the literature and you discover that Hochstein and Paradis in 1931 described vasocene as a major component of Pergamon Harmala. It never hurts to do your homework. Uh, even the biggies can profit from that. Pardon me? Two grams, Two grams of seed. And then the question, how much of the DMT? That's more something uh, where you the get... Well, if you're making a pseudo or neo-ayahuasca, you don't use Banisteriopsis. See, the classic ayahuasca is made out of Banisteriopsis capi, which is this huge woody jungle vine in the Malfagaceae, native to the Amazon. And it's made with the leaves of Socotria viridis, which is a little <clears throat> bush related to coffee, also in an Amazon endemic. Uh, the reason Socotria is preferred is because it has a very clean signature for DMT. In other words, there's very little in it except DMT. You don't want to take something that has monomethyltryptamine, alpha-methyltryptamine, 5-MeO, bufatine, and DMT, so forth and so on. I mean, this will put you all over the map. So the search is always... <laughs> For the clean, the clean source. So the, acacia has DMT. the acacia simplex on this list has the highest DMT ever measured. It, you grind them together, uh, squeeze a lemon into it, and that's to acidify the water in order to uh, cause the alkaloid to pull out a little more efficiently. Um, of the acacia simplex. 
every part of that plant seems to have a lot of DMT in it, but the root bark is most intense. Usually root bark is most intense. Uh, you know, there's this mysterious hallucinogen in eastern Brazil called uh, Jarima or Yarima, Vino de Yarima, Mimosa hostilis. That's an interesting one because it... Uh, uh, there's no known monoamine oxidase inhibitor present, and yet this stuff is orally active. So it's very interesting to pharmacologists. Uh, on this trip to Mexico, I became aware of the fact that there is a thing sold in Mexican drugstores called tipescoite, and uh, it's actually uh, made from the root bark of mimosa hostilis. It's sold as a burn uh, powder, but in fact, it's about 5% uh, DMT. Uh, some friends of mine were thinking of forming a company called Distribuidores Mexicanos de Tepescaite, <laughs> which would give you the initials DMT. <coughs> I don't know. Okay, so enough about that. Those of you who are amateur... Yeah. Acacia simplex. Uh, well, I have access to um, Banisteriopsis capi and Socotria viridis, so I'm a classicist and fairly conservative, and I, I just make classic ayahuasca. Um, these other things, people are reporting different things. You know, it's, a, it's an art. And eventually, I think they'll get it down. Uh, but uh, it's an inexact art at the moment. Arundo Donex. Uh, that's an interesting one. That's the giant Mediterranean river reed. And uh, uh, it has DMT in the roots. What makes it interesting aside from its botany is that plant, Arundodonex, to this day is the source for reeds, for uh, reeded musical instruments, clarinets and that sort of thing. Well, so here we have a river reed native to the ancient Middle East associated with flutes, associated with music, and uh, having to do and having its psychoactive principle under the ground in its roots, it is arguably some kind of Orphic uh, trope of some sort. I mean, Orpheus, you recall, made a journey into the underworld, was a player of a magical flute, so forth and so on. There's a lot of this kind of suggestive mythology that you can play with. And if anybody's interested in those subjects, you can steer me that way with a question. Otherwise, I won't get too much into it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, people think of it different ways. Sort of the way I think of it is, imagine a bullseye. And at the center of the bullseye is something like a high-dose smoked DMT experience. And then out some distance from that is high-dose psilocybin. And some distance from that, high-dose ayahuasca. And then, you know, 
the upper left corner is LSD, the lower right corner is salvinorine alpha, uh, mescaline is up here. So in other words, they're very different things, but all roads lead to Rome if you raise the dose high enough. And so it, it's, here's the spectrum that you pass through. If you take a low dose of mescaline, psilocybin, LSD, um, orally activated tryptamine, a low dose of any of those, they basically all make you feel the same, which is aroused, slightly discomforted, hypnagogia with closed eyes, slightly accelerated heartbeat, so forth and so on. Then if you increase the dose, you come into a zone where each one has its own characteristics. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. For what it's worth, I went out to Wikipedia just now to see if Terence's prediction about the uh, February 1996 events was correct. Well, uh, in my opinion, it was. Uh, that was a really horrific month in many respects. But hopefully the good always helps balance the bad. And so the only thing that I'm going to pass along right now about that month is the fact that this was also the month that the Pokemon series was first released in Japan. Now, if you're not a gamer, this probably won't mean much, but Pokemon is uh, part of the genesis of the gaming world. Uh, at least that's the way I see it. Uh, hardcore gamers among us may have some different opinions, I guess. Now, before I go, I should probably give you another update about the status of our website's migration to a new hosting company. And first of all, I want to extend a great big thank you to all of our fellow saloners who have offered to help me with this project. There are, of course, uh, things that I could pass along to others that would be of some help to me. But uh, like a few other people that I know, I don't seem to work very well with others, as uh, my teachers would have said. It's a definite failing on my part, and I recognize that. So I apologize for not taking you up on your offers. But the truth is that I'm also having a lot of fun doing this work. You know, uh, after a little while, us retired people still have to do something that seems like work uh, if we're going to keep from going batty, just staying home and not going to a job that we hate every day. <laughs> As the dead fans would say, what a long, strange trip this has been. Anyway, in a few weeks, all of my websites should be transferred to the uh, new hosting company, and within a couple of months, the new Psychedelic Salon site will be open. Uh, basically, it's going to be in many ways similar to what I've got for you right now, but it'll uh, also look a lot better and uh, be reflexive so that you can uh, use it better on a handheld or tablet device. But uh, there is one more thing that I'll be adding, and that is a social network app that's going to allow us to uh, better get in touch with one another, to find the others. Uh, for you geeks out there, what I'm talking about is BuddyPress, the uh, plug-in for WordPress. So if you want to, you can check it out and get a little idea of what I'm up to. And uh, as I get closer to rolling uh, all of this out, I'll mention it here in the podcast for you. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>